So tonight's talk is on what comes to us as our practice matures. What are some of the fruits along the way of this path that we walk? What are, what are some of the fruits that come as our practice matures? In my book, Dancing with Life, I talked about how there is both the relative and the absolute in the Buddha's teaching. This is under the Eightfold Path of Right View. The Dancing with Life is a book, uh, uh, sort of a modern day uh, teaching around the Four Noble Truths that came from my teacher, the Venerable John Sumedho. And I talk about the, the, in the relative uh, truth of wise view in terms of the relative is that there is a way of ease in moving through life and making the point that we are all going to be danced with by life. Life presents us with all these different circumstances, some very inspiring and pleasant and some quite difficult. And there's some degree of choice we have over that, but maybe not so much. But we do have choice as to how we respond to life circumstances as they arise. And this is one of the things that we learn from practice. We come to understand that, and we come to understand what some of those choices are and how to enact them in our lives. And then in my book, Emotional Chaos to Clarity, uh, I talked about the immediacy of, of clarity and intention, how each moment we bring to each moment through our practice clarity and this clarity around intention. Intention to what? To how we wish to meet this moment, how we wish to respond to this moment. And this is one of the great powers of the Buddhist teaching, is that it is so accessible in all parts of our lives at all time. As we start to understand some of these fun fundamentals, uh, many of which are contained in, quote, the lists, all the various, the seven factors of awakening, the five hindrances, the, the cycle of dependent origination and so forth. All of these, um, uh, all of these uh, core teachings, we do learn these skill sets that really help us meet life in a way that makes a really significant difference in our sense of well-being. And this sense of uh, change, this sense of well-being emerging uh, can come uh, relatively fast in some areas. By that I mean a few months, and some uh, a few years. So, in some practices, some things that come can take you know a decade or two to to really feel significant change in. But a lot of it is quite immediate, and then to recognize that and appreciate that. So, as we uh, start to have a maturity in our practice, it does. Uh, reshape our lives, it brings about transformations in our lives, and it brings an emerging perspective in relation to our day-to-day -day experience. What is required from us and that to happen is to show up, to actually practice. And I don't mean just practicing when you come out here on a day long or an evening or on retreat. And I don't mean just in your home practice when you're sitting on the cushion or the chair or the bench, but I mean throughout your day, throughout the way 
that you're meeting life, that practice is a 24-7, and that the, the formal practice time is the time that we get maybe a deeper understanding or momentum to apply to our daily lives. But it's, it's 24-7, it's everywhere. That's what matures practice, is living our practice day to day. I was, um, I was just teaching um, at, up at Cloud Mountain Retreat Center in Washington, and I was quoting um, a, 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 a monk, an Ajahn, Ajahn Lim, who was a Thai monk, and he was talking about this great transformation that happened to him. He's still alive and all, how, uh, what happened in one evening of sitting and, then, and this kind of uh, great change starting to happen to him and how over a few days his whole perspective just shifted, just dramatically shifted, and how it's lasted for years and years that his whole uh, way of relating to life dancing with him has just shifted. He did not use that phrase, of course. And uh, then, uh, but after he reports all of this in a really inspiring detail, he then says, and so I was, uh, at one point in this process, I was asking myself, now why am I practicing? Why am I bothering to practice? And he says, and I realized I bothered to practice because it is all about practice. That the whole thing is about practice, not getting somewhere, but practice itself. And I really embrace that view. That in the trying to get somewhere, we may actually get distracted rather than showing up. That it is the showing up, making ourselves available to the Dhamma, and the Dhamma will do us. So one thing that I was uh, encouraging at that retreat, and I was just in New Mexico at another retreat teaching, beautiful place called Viacitos, by the way, retreat center way up at 9,000 feet in New Mexico, way above Taos, and I was this thing that to ask yourself, in this moment, am I available to the Dhamma? Am I available for knowing to enter me? Am I available to have my heart be changed? Am I available to the Dhamma here and now? So tonight I'd like to have us explore three benefits that I've witnessed that start to emerge as people's practice matures. I've been doing this for a long time now, almost two decades of teaching and uh, another decade of practice before that and then a decade and a half of practice in another tradition before that. So I've had the privilege of witnessing a lot of, a lot of change through practice. And so I'd like to uh, go through three benefits that I think will be relevant to many of you in this room. Can't know for sure, but uh, seems to be beneficial to others. So before I do that, though, I want to name what I mean by practice and how I am, uh, have been personally drawn to practice and the way I've been offering practice instructions for others. And uh, that is... Um, uh, mindfulness as a moment-to-moment -moment practice. That is that the, the practice is uh, always here in this moment. It's being present right now. What's occurring in the mind? That might be occurring from outside stimulus through any of the sense gates, or it may be coming through a mind experience. 
which the mind experience could be a memory, it could be a memory with a strong emotion, it could be primarily uh, a memory or thinking, or it could be primarily emotional. So, uh, but that's through the mind to the heart. And so we're, we're interested in what's occurring in this moment, externally stimulated and internally stimulated. Secondly, we're interested in mindfulness as sama-sati. So it's not just, oh, being present for the moment, but this is in the Eightfold Path of the Four Noble Truths teaching, the Eightfold Path being the fourth of the Four Noble Truths. There, one of the eight folds is wise mindfulness. Wise mindfulness. It's called sama, wise. Other translations of that word as well. Sati, mindfulness. Sati is the word for mindfulness. And so, in samasati, the mindfulness has a particular aim. You can be mindful when you're um, uh, uh, doing something with your hands that's artistic. You can be mindful as you're rock climbing. You really want to find a very secure place if you're hanging by your fingertips and there's no, there's no safety rope. You're being very mindful. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things that the rock climbers will, will say in these articles that are written about them is how, how satisfying it is to be so totally present because they have to be. Likewise, a thief that breaks into your home and steals the, your computer off the kitchen table while you're asleep in the bedroom is being very mindful. So positive and a not so skillful use of mindfulness in daily life. People in a meeting that have learned to be mindful can seek advantage because they're more mindful and they go, oh, this person is fear-based. If I say, if we don't do what I'm trying to get them to do, this is bad things going to happen. And the person that's fear-based will go, oh, okay. They'll agree. A greed-based person, because they're mindful, and they say, oh, this person is greed. I say, you know, we'll get this and this if we just do this. We learn to be more persuasive through mindfulness. None of those, whether they're for positive reasons, for unskillful reasons, for manipulation, is the mindfulness of the Buddha. The mindfulness of the Buddha is to be mindful in such a way that we see suffering and we see how to end suffering. The Buddha said, I teach one thing only, suffering in the end of suffering. So the samasati, the mindfulness of the Buddha, the, the mindfulness we're learning by choosing to spend our evening here together, this wonderful uh, uh, summer evening together, is samasati, the mindfulness of the Buddha, that is the way that we end suffering, the way that we free our minds and free our hearts, the way we're able to more fully live life because we don't have to be guarded, because we're not afraid of suffering any longer. We're no longer afraid of it. We're not controlled by our, the, the, the wanting mind. We're not controlled by the aversive mind, not controlled by the deluded mind, not overwhelmed by our fears, because we have a mindfulness that knows what we're really about. And that brings to the, this third aspect of this. It's, uh, I have, I have in the last two years, three years, I, I usually say that what I am teaching is compassionate mindfulness. Mindfulness that includes the heart. Mindfulness without the heart can get dry. It can also get theoretical. It can get a kind of removed from life 
that's different than detachment. We're learning a certain detachment with mindfulness. We're learning a certain, uh, still inside the experience, but a certain, oh, this experience is like this. Uh, 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 having my feelings hurt by someone uh, that I trusted uh, really letting me down feels like this. There's hurt there. There's some confusion there. But there's presence of knowing it that allows us a choice rather than going into reactivity that we would later regret of mind because we, we, we are present. But there's also this tenderness. Oh, this hurts. This hurts. And that this hurts keeps us alive, keeps us present, stops us from getting dead, stops us from using numbness or using self-righteousness because they hurt me, I can hurt them. It allows us a space. It allows us caring. It allows us to see that there's a difference between an unskillful act and the person committing that unskillful act. Whether it's someone we're close to, someone that we don't get along well with, or even whether it's ourselves. So this compassionate mindfulness, being present from the perspective of choosing non-suffering over suffering, being present in a way that includes the heart space, compassionate mindfulness. One of the other things that this kind of mindfulness um, emphasizes that it slowly reprograms the mind is that we start to experience what's true right now not from our long-running soap opera, but from the experience itself. So anger is like this, is different than, people are always taking advantage of me, and I just shouldn't let that happen, there's something so wrong with me. All of this, this explosion of thought and emotions, what's called papancha mind in Buddhism, this uh, one moment's thoughts and emotions creating many more and many more and just going in all directions, often with a lot of delusion in it, and often with unskillful speech or action associated at some point. And so we learn to be with our experience as the phenomena, the phenomena of anger. Anger feels like this. Wanting minds. Oh, gratitude feels like this. Tenderness feels like this. Loving this person feels like this. We have, we have a kind of of experience of it that is not, it's not controlled by our old story as to this is how we got here, this is what's happening to me, this is where I'm going. It's a moment that is in and of itself. It doesn't mean that we're ignoring the narrative of our lives. In fact, the narrative of our life becomes more available to us in terms of our participation in it and our steering it as we have this ability to take each moment as its own experience. So uh, to give you an easy example, road rage happens because of a series of conditions, one building upon another and another. Road rage has no value to it. And uh, whether you felt it as cursing someone, uh, of getting up on their tail or whatever you do and this thing, road rage has no value but it is elicited by a series of conditions. You can go into road rage and be mindful. I'm really mad at this person. I'm going to do whatever you're going to do or whatever you're saying about the person and so forth or whatever gesture you might make. That's 
That's because there's a narrative of he, she did this to me and I'm already feeling this and that and I've got this and it's a whole narrative. It's, it's the actual experience is lost in the narrative. It's being, it's, it's swept away by this narrative that is, that's, that's been associated with it. And of course, even more so when we, when we're, um, we feel rejected in love or when um, we feel mistreated at the office, or when we get caught in something that we want in our work. We get obsessed with it, or get obsessed with a relationship, or obsessed with uh, uh, our story in relation to our sibling, whom is the difficult sibling in our life. Whatever it may be, we get caught in these things because of the narrative. But if we take each moment of that interaction with the difficult sibling, each moment of that wanting something in terms of our work, and we go, look at me really wanting this. Wow, boy, I really want this. And for that moment, it's free of the narrative. And in that moment, we're experiencing it as a phenomena. Wanting is like this. Uh, feeling unsafe with my brother or sister is like this. This moment as a phenomena allows for wisdom to come into play. It allows for our intuition to be more fully available to us. It allows us to see what really matters in this moment and therefore to choose more wisely. And so as we, as we do the Buddha's mindfulness, we become um, more empowered in relation to the narrative of our lives. Human beings can't live without story. We need story. But that doesn't mean that story should drive us. It doesn't mean that we should be a slave to our story. Because a lot of our story came about because of things we did not choose. And who then took an interpretation of them may have been someone else telling us what those meant. Or a younger version of us uh, said, well, this is da-da-da, and this means this, and this means that may not be true at all now. You've had more experience. You're older. You, you can see it in a larger perspective. So that we are cultivating, uh, our life is like a canvas we're painting on. Every event is part of that canvas. The phenomena approach, seeing it as this moment, allows us to remember it's a canvas. Not, we're not caught in the moment of this particular moment of it. And therefore our, our life becomes like our art. And we paint our life in part with practice. We paint our lives with the clarity of intention moment to moment as we do our different goals. And this changes the experience of our lives as we go. Compassionate mindfulness is meeting every moment as best we're able, and it will vary dramatically, with the tender heart. It's not just meeting it with knowing, but the knowing that includes what the heart values, what the heart cares about. And will it make a difference to those that you encounter? Whether it's someone you're really close to, just someone at work, someone in the supermarket. When we meet the moment with the tender heart, we're not judging. That's not the first thing that comes to mind, is to judge or to compare or to fix them. And yet, 
when the untrained mind is operating out of the narrative, what we tend to have is judging thoughts, or comparing thoughts, or fixing thoughts, or some combination of those three. And if you don't believe me, you can even watch during this talk. But certainly tomorrow, just one day, just try to count the number of judging or comparing or fixing thoughts you have about yourself or another. You will quickly lose count. It's like if you had a Fitbit for your mind. Wow, 10,000 judging, comparing, fixing thoughts today. But instead of trying to get more steps in the day, it would be trying to have fewer and fewer judging, fixing, and comparing thoughts in the day. As we meet the moment in this, uh, this compassionate mindfulness way, we know we've fallen off one side if we find ourselves having pity towards ourselves or towards another, or some sort of entitlement or some sort of uh, becoming codependent. That's not compassion. That's getting into pity and getting into a whole series of unskillful behaviors. And on the other side is indifference. So this compassionate mindfulness is the middle path that the Buddha talks about. The heart's available. The Buddha called uh, compassion, it's karuna in Pali. Okay, he called compassion, the heart's flutter. It's the appropriate heart's response when it meets suffering. It's part of the what's called the Brahma Viharas, these uh, heavenly abode states of, of a, a mind that's free, which is metta, the loving kindness, the friendness, the caring, the compassion, the, the uh, responding to suffering, the uh, happiness, the sympathetic joy that comes from the happiness of others, and then uh, the happiness, the equanimity that allows these other three to operate and not getting swept away. Uh, I, I was, uh, these, this, these friends of mine have a, a young daughter who was uh, going through an application process um, in, in her area. She's uh, in her 20s and going through all these and these process where she has to apply in, a, in her particular field. I'm being deliberately vague here. And um, uh, she had gotten nervous in these situations, so they asked me if I would be willing to do a coaching session with her around how to interview. And because I've you know, conducted thousands of interviews, hired over a thousand people at one time or another in my other life before I, I left that life for this 20-some years ago. And so I said, sure, I'm happy to do that. So we had this wonderful session, very bright, articulate uh, young woman uh, who was, was self-aware and uh, could, could, uh, could uh, say, hey, these are my areas of difficulty and all, and so around this interview process. So uh, we really had fun doing this. And, uh, and her father just called me today to say that she got this great opportunity. And she had written me to say, I did so well in this interview. I did so well in this process. And I, so today I've had this happiness. I didn't get this great opportunity. It's not my daughter, but I have had such happiness over someone else's happiness. That is sympathetic joy. Sympathetic joy is like the uh, mirror opposite of compassion. So compassion is the heart's flutter over difficulty. Sympathetic joy is the happiness 
that is your own happiness over the happiness of another. It is not happiness for. It is your own happiness that you feel over their happiness. Do you see that distinction? This is the, this is, uh, the maturity of this. And I, I take the time for this because uh, when I, I, I talk about compassionate mindfulness because so much of what we first encounter as, we, as we're practicing is we become mindful of the difficult. But as we're practicing, as we're becoming more mindful from this compassionate mindfulness, once the heart doesn't have to turn or be guarded against the difficult arising, it's much more available for happy moments, happiness that are within your experience, the happiness of others. Very detectable, very easy to see. So this, this compassionate mindfulness. When we, when we look at the, um, uh, uh, these benefits then that come from a practice that, again, that's 24-7, that's in all parts of your life, as best you're able at any time, but always coming back to it, always coming back to practice. And when we do practice, starting where we are. So many times when people come in to discuss their practice, they will, they will have the shoulds and the oughts, and oh, I was there, and I knew what I should be doing. I, I, I started doing da-da-da because I knew that's what I should be doing. And always I say to them, no, 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 let's back up a moment. Practice means starting where we are. So you, they, they might say, oh, I, I know I shouldn't be holding on to this thing, so I just let loose of it as best I could. Da, 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 da. I say, no, first feel the grasping, feel the angry, feel the wanting, feel the clinging. We start our practice where we are, not where we think we want to be, where we should be. We know, we know as best again we're able, what would be more skillful maybe. But right now is what we're feeling. This moment is like this. This moment's not like where it would be if we were better than we are in this moment. If we, and based on our judging, comparing, and fixing, I might hasten to add. But no, we start right now. Wow, clinging feels like this. Grasping feels like this. Uh, not wanting this feels like this. Not wanting this. So wanting to become this. These are all forms of the second noble truth that I'm making reference to. No, it feels like this. We start where we are. Otherwise, we never really get to the heart of our experience. We are, we're jumping over the immediacy of our experience. So it's, as, it's, it's showing up in this very moment. That's where the rub is. That's where the clinging, that's where the grasping, the pushing and pulling is. So if we go, oh, I'm not going to do that, we don't really know what the feeling is. And we can maybe force a change but it's more theoretical than real. It's not deeply changing the ingrained habit. So staying where we are, starting right where we are. And as we do this, we start to see that certain benefits will arise. One of those is the difference between being defined by an experience and being characterized by it. Uh, uh, person was in yesterday talking with me and he was saying you know there's there's only a couple things that I use 
from, uh, from all of these teachings. But I use one over and over again every day. And that is that I do understand that there's a difference between being defined by something I'm experiencing, an emotion, a situation, versus being characterized by it. And this is such a benefit when we learn that we can change our perspective. So here something comes up in your life, uh, a rejection or um, a, a health problem. And here you've got this health problem and it's scary and it's, it's difficult, there's pain and you don't know how it's going to turn out or so many different things. You're, there's young people in the room applying to college or uh, you know, that first job or a relationship, whatever it is, that, that uh, it's not going the way we want it and, or we're just wanting it and we get defined by the wanting or we're, we're, we're defined by the disappointment. We become, our identification, our grasping of our experience is so strong that we literally become this experience. It is a me and a mine. This is my experience. This is me. There is a, the, the identification is total. At that moment, we have no choice or little choice because we're caught in the pleasant or unpleasantness, what in Buddhism is called Vedna, the pleasant or the unpleasantness of that experience. It is filling our mind. We're being defined by that. And so all we can do is be like a puppet on the end of the strings of pleasant and unpleasant. Dance this way, dance that way. That's it. Because we have so identified with our experience. We are, we are like uh, Pavlov's dog. You know, we're just, we're trained, we've been conditioned. As we watch this with this compassionate mindfulness, we see this just causes a lot of suffering. I am making what is already an unpleasant situation in many instances worse by my reactivity. The mindfulness allows us to see that it is true in this moment that this is happening, but this is not all of me, that there's much more to, to you in this moment than that one experience. So what's characterizing this moment is my disappointment or my physical pain or my wanting or my excitement. That's characterizing this moment, but it does not define me. It doesn't define me. So then what does define you? Your values, what you really care about. That's what defines us, not what's happening in a given moment if we have the mindfulness that allows us to have the wisdom to see this, the compassionate mindfulness that, that where we can touch our own heart and know that what we really care about is what really matters to us, not what's so true in this moment, whether we're tired or frustrated or overexcited or pushing because everybody else is pushing. No, that's not what defines us. What defines us is our deepest values. The Buddha in the Eightfold Path teaching describes this as sama samkapa, wise intention, wise intention. This intention based on our values, this coming out of right view, this is what really matters. So this is the first of these three benefits I'm wanting us to explore, is this importance of being able to uh, interpret, understand this moment in terms of it characterizing us this moment. It's coloring the mind in this moment. It may be separating us somewhat from our heart in this moment, but we know that it is only characterizing the moment. I am not this moment. This moment is happening to, due to many conditions. 
So I want to pause here. Do you understand that? Any question about this? Anybody want to say that's not true? Any, just anything you want to say about it, ask about it. Remember earlier on I said I wanted to encourage you. Are you going to come, you coming up to get the microphone? Good man. I, there's so many hands to choose from though right now, I don't know what we're going to do. So this is one of the things about Monday Night Group. To, to, I want to encourage, uh, I, I come out here three or four times a year, and I want to encourage more. I, it's a large group, and therefore it can be hard to uh, share your question, uh, particularly, uh, it's kind of personal. But, uh. um, in my experience, sometimes when larger emotions come up or reactions come up, and I turn the magnifying glass of awareness onto those emotions or that situation, that, not situation, but internal phenomenon, they, they seem like they're magnified and harder to sit with. And sometimes I feel it's helpful to actually deter my attention and let that kind of cloud pass. Okay, so you've heard what she said about when she turns her attention on it, so this actually, these are two skillful means supporting my same point. Sometimes when we turn our attention on the experience, that what we see is how big it is, and if we stay with it because we're caught in it, then it gets bigger. That is not necessarily a bad thing because as it getting bigger, we get to see how deeply it's entwined in us, and that's what we explore. So sometimes it's quite skillful to let it get really big. I can remember on a number of retreats, people say, this, I've got this anger in me. And I'll say, well, how big is it? Oh, well, it's, 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 it's bigger than my body. Well, is it bigger than this? Is it big as this room? Oh, it's much bigger than this room. I'll say, well, let it be that big. And it just gets bigger and bigger. And ah, it finally gets out. Other times you would say to someone, okay, let's move our attention away from this because it's too much, because we're being pulled in. Instead of being characterized, we are being defined, so it's useful to move away. This, this, uh, so that's a very helpful question, and thank you for that. This, uh, this uh, learning the difference between being characterized by a moment and defined is something you do by seeing. When you're strongly uh, having a strong emotion, uh, in the next uh, few days. Just see, well, am I being defined by this moment or, or am I being characterized by it? Just look to see for yourself. See what's true about it. It will be, yes, take the question back to the back if you can, please. It is, um, it is very empowering when you don't get swept away to, in your own mind. You may not get swept away externally, but you're swept away in your own mind. So as I'm understanding what we're talking about tonight, it sounds like an inner journey of understanding ourselves, the intrapersonal. My question is about a different journey, which is called parenting. Mm -hmm. <laughs> when I take my values that I feel so deeply and I offer it up as interpersonal, it's not necessarily the same value of twin girls at 11 and a half years old who think about shopping. Uh -huh. And I'm, I'm so much about 
teaching what my values are of honesty and integrity and all that, nice. la, la, la. So I'm planting seeds. I'm wondering how to do that journey of parenting interpersonal when it, it feels like I'm putting these fabulous values on them to wear when they actually want to wear clothes. Uh-huh. Well, it's, it's I think that, that you captured quite well their experience of that with the la-la-la. <laughs> There's mom going la-la-la again. So um, uh, in, in terms of the first part of this practice would be watching your experience. So when you feel not received by them, to, that, you know, that, they're, that they're dismissing you, if, that can hurt, you know. That, I see that, yes. That can be very hurtful when a child is, is sort of not. So respecting, receiving, getting the idea of it. So in that moment, watch what happens to your own inner life. Do you get defined by this projection? Do you get defined by your projection? Or are you even defined by trying to insist on what their values should be? If, and, and then see how that's working out. And then going, oh, and this, then seeing if you can move to much more of a being characterized. I really care about this, but ultimately this is their choice. Is there more space, not just for you, when you're, when you're just, you're running into frustration with trying to affect them, the, the values versus the clothes, but is there more space for them? I, it's, this, it's funny that this came up because I've, um, at the end of this retreat, I was having this conversation about a mother with a mother and her daughter. Not the daughter wasn't there, but her mother about about her her relationship to this daughter. And we were going through this. Uh, uh, we were we using slightly different language, some of the same language here. And her mother had this aha moment that was just so wonderful. She says, "Oh." All this time, I see how my, I can now feel how my daughter feels. She feels like I'm so crowding her. I actually can feel what my daughter's feeling. And they had, because her, her, she and her daughter had had different values at different times. And um, this had been a rough journey at times because the daughter's now in her 20s. And it had been a rough journey at times. And, I, and I'd had other conversations through the years. Uh, with this the, with this woman about her daughter, and this was the first time that she got it in terms of like, oh, because I was getting I was getting triggered by her actions and uh, speech and so forth that i was i was it was closing me in on her, and then she was of course pushing back, going dead on me and all this oh i don 't have to do that. I can hold my values. Uh, in regard to all of these things, these decisions my daughter's making, in a much more spacious way, and I I was overjoyed to have this realization happen. So the, this this applies everywhere in this way, and then over time, uh, what you're doing, you are coming from your values, which are this is this is what I care about. I believe this matters. This is an offering. You're not, you, cannot, in, in, you cannot force it into another human being. You're making this offering, and as you make it in a spacious way where you don't get tight. You, that, but being firm, but not getting tight, is the way that it would be most likely to be taken as seed. And, um, 
and, and the patience. So in this moment, I don't want to be defined by my frustration because then I'm going to, what they're going to get is my frustration, not my caring. So that kind of, that's, that's the way this would apply. I'm going to go on and then we'll come back to this one. And well, I'll take one more. Let's go over with this hand up. You talked earlier about not uh, getting caught up in the narrative and taking things uh, in the moment uh -huh. as they are. Um, but I think part of that narrative, both our, our past and our future, uh, that's what allows us to kind of set goals and yes. strive to create a, a better world. So how do you balance being in the moment and accepting things as they are with that right. goal and, setting? And remember I said that we can't exist without a story. Because we, 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 we can't set goals without a story. We can't interpret any event without a story. There's a, a, a wonderful book uh, by, that just came out by a man named David V. White. David V. White. About, the, uh, about art and science. And uh, uh, he had these four separate uh, categories of way we, we experience things. And all of them involve stories. It's just fresh out. You can get it on Amazon, David V. White. And he makes this point over and over again about the importance of story. And um, uh, so we are going to, we, we, want to, we want to be refining our story uh, with less and less of greed in it, less and less of aversion, less and less of attachment to our past in such a way that it is narrowing us. It's less and less so that we're being defined by our reactivity around the past. So we're, we're always working with the story. But in this moment, to be with this moment as a phenomena. So let's suppose that you, you and your mother have had a relationship of some kind. And in, in this moment, uh, it's, it's a little difficult what's occurring. And it's about an area that you've had differences of interpretation in the past. So uh, if you get lost in your story in this moment, she never understands me. She never understands me. And there's a closing down of you and a closing down between the two of you inside because you, you got swept away by the story. So in this moment, you're being defined by that story. But in fact, here is this moment is being characterized by one more uh, struggle of understanding communication between you and your mother in this moment. So in that being, this moment is characterizing by that, but that gives, by not being defined, there's room for who else do I want to be in this moment? Yes, this is the same old thing of here we're having this, this disagreement, but what else do I wish to be in this moment? There's room for you to choose. You know, my mother's getting older now. It's, it matters less to me that she understand me and that I be more tender towards her. That would be an example. Oh, my arguing back with her never leads anywhere. I want to, I want to let her feel that I'm hearing her. There's, there's, when, when something's characterizing the moment and not defining it, you have many more choices as to how to respond. And that gives, that gives you a better possibility of an inner feeling and also an inner feeling for others. Does that point to the direction of this? 
this is this is very workable in this way. Do you have you want to say more? About well, it? you talk about it with regards to the past. How about thinking about it with regards to kind of striving towards what you want for the well, future? So, when if you think I've got to this, uh, be, having been an entrepreneur in my previous life, I've often encountered people say, "I've got to be completely attached." To this, to make this payroll happen. If I don't, if I'm not completely grasping onto this and totally attached to this, I won't make payroll. And all I can say back is that I have not seen that to be true. That when we, the more we grasp, the the less likely we are to have clear thinking and access to our intuition. And when we when we get defined by something. People get, our enthusiasm is infectious when it's spacious, when it's graspy in nature, when it's all defined, there's a, there's a level of distrust. And when things go wrong, people head for the exits. So and in terms of our own goals, we may have wanted something for a long, long time. But if, and if we get defined by that in that way, we are not open to, the, to input that says, no, I no longer want to do this. So many different ways to watch what's happening right now. I'm thinking about this future. Am I being defined or characterized by it? Do I have, do I have openness to other input in this? We have to stop with that now to go on. So this is the first one. The difference between being defined by something and characterized by it in a moment of mindfulness. Referencing the story, referencing many things, but not being caught in uh, uh, road rage is an easy example but many other uh, endless number of examples. The second uh, thing of a maturity of practice is being able to choose where we place our attention. And this comes back to the earlier example about if, if, you're, if you, something's arising in the moment and you become mindful of it, do you stay more mindful of it or do you move your attention away from it? Being able to place our attention someplace that of our choice is so empowering. There you are in a meeting at work, and you're, you're, so you're, there's, some, there's some discussion going on. And in, in the way that you are, you, the person who's presenting is so irritating to you, and you're going to present next. And you're getting more and more irritated. The person's taking up your time as well as theirs, and they're saying things that's not true, and taking credit for some things that you did. And you're getting more and more irritated. The more that you feed that, the more you're staying with it, and this is not right, da, 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 the more unskillful you're going to be when it's your turn. Oh, I see some recognition out there. And so being able to, to place your attention back on your body, to place your attention on the room as a whole, to place your attention on, you know, this... this you know, I, this is what I want to accomplish here, and to not leave your attention on how wrong all this is, to move your attention away from it. The same way if body pain, if you're having a body pain and your, your attention's on it and on it and on it, at some point to move your attention away from that body pain to neutral parts of the body or to a neutral experience of hearing or seeing something else. Because we, we, are, we oftentimes start feeding the misery. The Buddha called it the second arrow where we shoot ourselves with our... our uh, are uh, not wanting to be in that pain at that moment, emotional or physical pain. 
So being able to place attention. So obviously in practice itself, the more we're able in formal practice to place our attention on the breath or on the body or on the Vedna, the pleasant or unpleasantness or the mind states, to be able to place our attention as we choose empowers our practice, but it even more empowers our daily life. And the, the mind responds well to the cultivation of placing attention. All of us do this in, our, in completing our task, but it's uh, but we are usually learning. We're we're our, our, it's stimulation that's causing us to place attention somewhere. I've got to get this paper written. I've got to get this food prepared for dinner. So there's a pressure, and pressure drives the placing of attention. Through the training of mindfulness, you learn to place attention based on your values not based on what's the highest stimulation of the moment. Because the stimulation of the moment is often something that's not particularly skillful. It's just the stimulation of the moment. Learning to place attention, having choice about placing attention. The ultimate maturity of this is that we place attention in such a way that we have choice in choosing non-suffering over suffering. So that we don't hold a situation in our mind, we don't react in our mind in such a way that's just going to lead to more suffering. We are able to choose that kind of suffering that leads to the end of suffering rather than the kind of suffering that leads to more suffering, as I so often quote. That was in the front of Dancing with Life. So being able to place attention, being able to uh, move to being characterized by the moment, not defined. And then third... Uh, that as the practice matures, we become more and more able to feel present in the moment in an authentic way and emotionally available in the moment. This is one of the great beauties of practice. And uh, we can get uh, sometimes uh, thinking about just relieving stress or total liberation. What is total liberation? I want nibbana. So we can have extremes, one way of wanting full liberation or just wanting this kind of little respite from the moment. But there's this big space in between in which our practice leads us to a greater feeling of being present. We develop a kind of presence that's palpable to us and to others. A presence and um, so, uh, so easily seen in a number of the monastic because they, their practice is so deep. But in many, many people that are lay practitioners, where they've, you can feel the, the way their practice has, has affected them. They, they are present moment to moment to the degree that there's a continuity that feels like presence. And when you're listened to by someone who, who brings that presence and listening to you, so satisfying. And you too can become that kind of listener. So this, this, this sense of being present, of being present, having a presence, and that, that leads to, because we know what we're about, we're present. I am choosing to, uh, to meet life from my values. So we have different goals in life, and different goals uh, call for different skillful means. But all of those goals, whatever skillful means we're using, we are referencing, we are we're meeting each moment from the values as to who we want to be. So we don't, we don't 
cheat. We, uh, no matter what our goals are, we don't lie no matter what our goals are. We're not unkind no matter what our goals are. The Buddha used his three core intentions as non-harming, loving kindness, and renunciation. Those were his three core values. And he, his teaching was, no matter what we're doing, those th these three things are present of kindness, of non-harming, and of the renunciation power to say no to our strong emotions that would cause us to either harm or not be kind. So this, 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 uh, this feeling of authenticity uh, uh, comes out of, of having this clear values. And then there is this emotional availability because we're present. You may not believe this, but if you watch yourself, because no one's asking you to believe, the Buddha says, Ei Pasako, come see for yourself. If we are uh, uh, afraid of our suffering, if we're afraid of not suffering, but of dukkha, is a better way to say it, this, this dukkha, because this, that's the unsatisfactoriness, the stress, the, uh, the, the physical and emotional pain, it's more than just this, this one word, suffering. If we're afraid that the next moment or this moment as it's arising is going to be suffering. There's a little holding back or a little pushing against or a little spacing out that is in there somewhere. Why? Because we don't know what the moment's going to bring. And the moment around the corner, who knows what that's going to bring. So there's an alertness. That's, uh, there's a, a kind of uh, a hyper alertness. There's a kind of deadness because I don't, it's not going to matter to me. There's a spaced outness. There's all of these coping mechanisms because we don't trust ourselves to meet the moment. This practice moves us beyond being afraid of the moment in that way, being uncomfortable with the moment, whatever it's going to bring. That not only frees us from the anticipation of the suffering, it opens us to the good moments. So, to explain that in more detail, the, the moment that if, if, if we're girded against something difficult happening in our lives, that girdedness, that sort of being defensive, might work if what we're anticipating is going to be the difficulty comes and hits us. We're ready for that difficulty. But what if it's some other difficulty? Not a good idea. And being prepared all the time actually is wearing on the nervous system. If you want to be with the difficulty, stay neutral. Stay in this open awareness, this neutral. Stay neutral. That gives you the best position to respond to any difficult moment you're going to have. It's easy to see. It's, it's too tiring to be ready for the difficult. It's too, difficult. it's too tiring to be there if, you're, if your relationship's on hard times right now and you're already waiting for the, her or him to say the next mean thing to you, the next criticism. It's too difficult. It'll wear you out. Far better to be neutral. And then you, you have the energy to meet it and it will not wear you out in the same way. And the same way about fear about something at work or certainly fear in driving. When we're totally afraid driving, which will happen to people after having had an accident, that makes us much more likely to have another accident. And it's totally exhausting to drive when you're afraid like that. So this, there's this, 
and that's in the negative side. In the positive side, if you're, if you're neutral and something good happens, then you're available for it. But if you're girded against something difficult happening all the time, then you, you're not available to fully receive the positive. It's true. Just see for yourself. See for yourself. You, if, if you're ready for the criticism from your significant other, when something positive happens, you're like two beats or three beats behind before it ever registers. And you've missed a lot of the moment and often missed being able to positively respond back in a way that would bring harmony to the relationship. I'm just being very practical here about all of these things because I want to stress the day-to-day benefits in this, in this exploration of all of this. I'm not, I'm not talking about this big liberation. I'm talking about the day-to-day liberation because that will, that will lead you forward. That's onward leading in terms of practice. When we start to see the benefits of practice, that's what's onward leading. So these three things, we learn to be characterized by the moment and not defined by it on an ever-grading parts of our life. We expand more and more where we're not, where we're not defined by when things happen to us. We're not defined by it. This is happening right now, and I know that, but it's just happening right now. It really happens that way. It, it opens that way. And the same way we learn to place our attention. I'm not going to do this story in my head one more time right now. I'm not going to do it again. I'm going to move my attention elsewhere. I'm not going to uh, uh, keep uh, obsessing about this pain that I'm feeling in my body. I'm going to move my attention elsewhere. The pain will be less. I am going to. I am. I am. I am choosing to stay present and emotionally available in this moment. I don't want to be guarded against the difficulty all the time. I want to assume that life's going to be an ever-changing experience of, of, of pleasant and unpleasant, and I don't know this moment. And I don't know what would be the appropriate response to the unpleasant or the pleasant even until it arises because there's all these little small things that are about that moment that even if it's unpleasant, it, 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 how, what would be an appropriate response may be quite different than what I would have anticipated. So I'll just meet this moment. And I know what I'm about because I've got this orientation of I'm coming from my intentions. I've got my goals, but I, I can't always get my goals. I don't necessarily know what skillfulness moment towards my goals. Oh, I'm not su- succeeding right now, but I know who I am. And I know how I meet each moment, no matter how it's going well or not going well towards my goals. It's a basis for living, a, a, an enriched kind of living. Just to finish here for a moment, this does not mean this does not mean that life will not have difficult times. Of course life is going to have difficult times. It does not mean that we're not going to get caught in our stuff. Of course you will get caught in your stuff. Count on it. It does not mean that we're not ever going to feel isolated or alienated or overwhelmed or disoriented. All of these mind states and many more will arise in the mind. Life is challenging. No matter, the youngest person in the room already knows this, that life is challenging. I can say to you that you'll find it's even more challenging. (laughs) But life is challenging in all these different ways. We're not trying to avoid life being challenged. 
We're not trying to avoid that life is challenging. We're not disputing the difficulty. We're learning how to meet it. We're learning how to dance with life in a way that's more freeing. So this, uh, at this, it's time for our evening to come to an end. So let's just close our eyes for a moment. Ask yourself for a moment, what do you choose? What do you choose for this week? What do you choose for tomorrow? How do you wish to be oriented? Is it all based on your reactivity to what's out there or to the reactivity of your story? Or do you want to live in a way that's responsive from your deepest self? As you go just as hard towards your goals as you care about just what you care about, but from this place of a responsive mind-heart, what is your choice? Thank you for your kind attention this evening. When you leave, please turn right at the end of the driveway, and then you can take, if you're going back to San Francisco or the East Bay, you can take a left at the very first left, go down the hill, take the first left, and come back around. We don't turn left out of this driveway. It's against the law for number one, but much more important to us is that we keep our agreements. We, we've agreed to do this, so we keep our agreements as practice. Um, I want to thank the volunteers for all the work you've done. If you, can, uh, if you can help them stay and clean up. They come early and they do this work and they stay later. And it's just, uh, it's a big part. So thank you, volunteers. And uh, I think that's it. See you. See you some other time. Thanks for being here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.